Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm here with Dr. Rebecca Roach. She is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at Royal Holloway, University of London. She teaches Practical Ethics, Logic, Philosophy of Mind, Philosophy of Psychiatry, Philosophy of Language, and Early Modern Philosophy. She has also been Research Fellow at the Oxford Centre for Neuroethics and Program Manager of the Oxford Loyal Lectures and Research Program at the University of Oxford. Before that, she was James Martin Research Fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute. Since 2013, Dr. Roach has been an Associate Editor of the Journal of Medical Ethics and, since 2007, she has also been a contributor to Oxford's Practical Ethics, Ethics in the News blog. So, Dr. Roach, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so today I've decided to ask you to talk about philosophy of psychiatry because it's really not a common theme, let's say, I guess, even in philosophy. So I would first like to ask you, uh, I guess that when people think about psychiatry, they associate it with medicine and with science, and perhaps they think that it's something that is part of science and that probably should not be discussed at the at the philosophical level, let's say. So, uh, what is the first thing that people should know about philosophy of psychiatry, and why should we reflect on how psychiatry is done? Um, well, it's it's a hugely fertile area for philosophers. So, I think it's Jonathan Glover who, uh, sort of, a few decades ago, pointed to this area as kind of unexplored by philosophers and um, something that, you know, sort of by looking at uh, people with uh, mental illnesses, problems with problems of cognition and so on, that we could learn an awful lot about, about how we think in general. Um, there are, there's sort of all sorts of uh, avenues for exploration. So you uh, it can teach us about uh, the way we think through looking at um, pathologies of um of thought, if you like, um, there are sort of ethical issues involved. So psychiatry is uh, one of the few areas of medicine where people tend to be uh, occasionally treated without their consent. Um, there's issues around sort of what it counts to to be capable of consent and to be autonomous, um, capable of uh, making um, informed decisions about one's treatment and so on. Um, but really, the way I've come at it is through a, a kind of philosophy of science angle. Um, so my interest is mainly in um, what what is the conceptual structure of psychiatry. Um, so it's unusual in that it's, it's a branch of medicine. And in that respect, you think it sort of fits firmly into sort of medical framework. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, it's uh, it, it's sort of informed by this psychoanalytic tradition, which is not particularly scientific in in various respects. Um, and it's still today, it sort of draws on both of those uh, both of those um, aspects. So uh, mental illnesses will sometimes be treated and viewed by psychiatrists as if they are 
or kind of um, the same sort of thing as somatic illnesses. So that there's there's some sense in which being schizophrenic is like having a broken leg. That um, that both of those can be thought of as disease states in in some way. But on the other hand, there is this approach which takes uh, tackles sort of mental illness in a more more in a way of sort of tackling the, the sort of rational processes behind it. So so when somebody goes to goes for psychoanal psychoanalysis, for example, um, they're not going to be treated in many ways as a as a patient um, is in medicine. So they're not going to be sort of subjected to tests and so on. It's all about sort of how how their thoughts and beliefs and feelings relate to each other. Um, and whereas the sort of first way of looking at mental illness I've described, uh, well, views uh, views the mind in in a similar way to the body, you know, as something that can be explored by science. Um, the psychoanalytic tradition is, in some ways, treats the the brain as a as a black box. That's something you sometimes hear uh, said that um, it's not interested in sort of biological workings of the brain. It's interested in the rational connections between um, different thoughts and emotions. Um, and what we have today is this kind of mishmash of approaches which sometimes don't relate to each other in um, in very helpful ways. So there's these sort of questions about, you know, if you want to um, if you want to tackle depression, for example, if you want to cure somebody of depression, you can take a, a biological pro approach, you know, you can give them you can give them pills, um, or you can take a uh, well, what we might call a sort of psychological interpersonal approach is that you, you sort of might, might talk to them and attempt to resolve things that way. And so there's this question about how all these different approaches um, mesh together and what is the sort of underlying structure of psychiatry? What's the sort of underlying view of mental illness and patients that, that pull all this together? So that's, that sort of motivates my main interests in this area. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess that are a lot of tricky questions there, and perhaps the first one would be, so if we have all of these different approaches, uh, what is the best way to really classify something that gets expressed uh, behaviorally, let's say in terms of the behavior of the patient or something like that, to classify uh, a set of behaviors as a mental illness or a mental condition or something that is simply wrong with the with the person well that's a good question um sometimes it is about behavior um so you know we we uh, diagnose uh people with mental illnesses um often primarily on the basis of their behavior so unlike sort of uh a lot of somatic illnesses you can't just do a do a blood test or a scan on somebody and diagnose them with a mental illness that way so um, psychiatrists have to rely on um, behavioral signals um, and sort of talking talking to the patient finding out about them um, that way but um, you know often the way we think about uh, certain mental illnesses involves not just behavior but other things as well so um, if you take something like schizophrenia, that might have, um, you know, sort of big behavioral characteristics. So somebody who is schizophrenic might um, occasionally, you know, when they're psychotic, uh, behave in an erratic way. Um, but that's not all that's going on. The other things that will, go, will be going on will be to do with the, the patient's own experience. So you would expect them maybe to have sort of certain 
uh, irrational beliefs. Um, and perhaps uh, it might be the case that their, their brains differ in some way from people who are not schizophrenic. You know, there's sometimes um, uh, progress that seems to be made in this direction where with certain mental illnesses, it, it, it looks like possibly one day we'll get uh, to a position where um, mental illnesses can be seen to correlate with certain brain states. Uh, but that that's not always the case. So, so there is this question about how we bring these things together. What are the what are the significant important factors for for diagnosing and treating mental illness? Are we trying to change behaviour, um, or is it uh, or is it the patient's um, subjective states that should be the target of um, treatment, um, or should it be some uh, sort of biological pathology? Um, and generally, I think, the, sort of, in most cases, um, you, you find uh, psychiatric illnesses characterised in terms of, of the patient's distress. So that's the important thing. You know, if if if, if a patient has um, a certain set of symptoms and they're not causing any distress, then in most cases, that's kind of seen as okay and, and, and not something that a psychiatrist should take an interest in. I mean, there's, there are a few exceptions. Um, but then, if we're talking about uh, the, the main thing being the patient's distress, then um, you know that that raises questions for well, how does that affect the um, the effort to um, by some psychiatrists to to characterise mental illness in terms of biological pathology? I mean, what what would happen, for example, if we found that a certain set of brain states uh, corresponded to um, depression, um, and yet it, it turned out you sort of ended up with um, I mean, it's conceptually possible. You would think that you could get a patient with, with those brain states. Uh, who claims not to be experiencing depression? I mean, if you got if you got into a situation like that, what then would be the uh, the deci deciding factor for saying that a patient does um, does have a certain uh, condition? So there, there are these sort of uh, conceptual, quite difficult sort of philosophy of science type problems about um, there being sort of different levels of explanation of why patients experiencing certain things or behaving in a certain way. You, know, you can look at their behaviour, their um, their experiences as reported by them or whatever it is that uh, that comes up in a brain scan um, you would hope that there's some sort of uh, there's some some sort of conceptual framework that can pull all this together and show how these things fit together but um, we don't quite have that yet mm -hmm. yes I think it's very complicated because on the one hand uh, I mean, at least part of the diagnosis depends on the reporting of the patient. That is, patient, the patient tells the doctor, the psychiatrist or the psychologist in that case, uh, how he or she behaves, what he or she feels, what he or she thinks, what happened in his or her life and things like that. And I mean, people's reports of uh, primarily about the causes of their behavior, they are, uh, they are not really that reliable because even people's memories don't work as we think and people forget a lot of things and people put it, uh, give, pay more attention to certain things than others and things like that. But I mean, on the other hand, uh, I, I guess that if someone says that she feels bad with the way she behaves or something like that, that we should pay attention to that. But I guess that another point would be also that perhaps sometimes people behave in certain ways 
that other people don't deem to be good for them or that have bad consequences and the person itself doesn't think that even with the bad consequences that she gets that that is something that there's something wrong with her or them but uh, i mean so it is very complicated here because <laughs> we have to evaluate what people think about their own behavior the consequences of that behavior for them what other people think of the consequences of their behavior and all of these things right and sometimes there might be a conflict even between what people think is right or wrong with themselves and what uh, specialists think of that right yeah yeah i, I think so um and there's just a disconnect with the rest of medicine so you know whether you have uh whether you have cancer or a broken leg or um a cold is is something that um you know how you feel about that is kind of irrelevant um you know if you're diagnosed there, there's there's one um uh, whether you can be said to have a certain somatic disease or disorder is is, is one issue and how you feel about it is another one um whereas with psychiatry it can be it can be more central i think that distress takes um a more a more central role in in whether and how people are diagnosed mm -hmm. right and i mean when i was talking about the part of uh how people uh, classify the behaviors or consequences of the behaviors of other people as good or bad or appropriate or inappropriate it it always has a moralistic side to it right because it also depends at least to a certain extent to what a certain society at a certain point in history deems to be appropriate or inappropriate behavior or moral or immoral and and things like that right absolutely so that that's a really that's a really interesting point i think um so if you look up what the the sort of official um diagnostic criteria are for um for delusions for example sort of whether somebody can be said to have it have delusions um one thing that's explicitly stated in the um the DSM, so the official guide to uh, to to diagnosing mental illnesses, is that a delusion has to be something, a belief that is um, that is not uh, not endorsed by one's culture. So you know, if you believe that uh, if you believe that you're a bird, for example, um, and you live somewhere like the UK, um, then you know, if you sort of that might count as a delusion. Um, but if you are part of, uh, if you live in a culture where that's kind of part of a sort of you know a belief associated with religion say that that's sort of dominant in your culture then then that's not going to count as delusion um and this is something that um that richard dawkins has picked up on not writing um not writing about psychiatry specifically but um he has this book called the god delusion where he's claiming that um, the belief in god is uh is a form of delusion and you know you can sort of maybe see see what he's getting at but um but a belief in God sort of doesn't count as a delusion because it is um, it's prohibited by the, uh, the the guidelines for diagnosis that it's um, it's a belief that's that's common in um, a lot of cultures and so 
it's not going to count as a delusion. So that's an example where sort of what we, how we conceive as um, a pathological state is going to be influenced by cultural considerations. Um, and, and there's sort of more general examples of that. So, um, so personality disorders are um, a sort of uh, sets of traits that cause problems for people's interaction with others. Um, and when you sort of read through what's involved, they are just, um, it, it's hard to conceive of what the problem is unless you are open to the view that, um, you know, we have these we have these norms and expectations about the way that we relate to others. And there's certain things that cause problems for our ways of relating to others. Um, and in certain cases, that can um, constitute a personality disorder. But again, that's sort of heavily influenced by this sort of prior set of beliefs about what healthy interpersonal relationships involve. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So I think that this would be a good point to introduce a question that comes from one of my patrons, because since you referred religion and Richard Dawkins, I guess that religion also has the side of the uh, natural basis to it, that is the cognitive basis to it, and, and how, uh, I mean, where it comes from is, ne is not really uh, a pathology or something wrong with people, is simply the result of certain biases that we have evolved and how people deal with the world and think about it. So uh, I would like to introduce now the question coming from my patron, Francis Ford. And he says, I would love to hear Dr. Rebecca Roach's thoughts on adaptationist accounts of mental disorder, which argue that conditions such as depression are selected for adaptations in past environments. One sh such account is the analytical rumination hypothesis. I, I guess I guess that we're, what he's trying to ask here is that so there are people like uh, evolutionary psychiatrists nowadays that deal with certain mental conditions. In the in this case, he gives the example of depression as perhaps behaviors that in past environments were really adapted to deal with those environments, but perhaps nowadays in more modern industrialized societies and the way we live, they are no longer um, adapted or perhaps they are no longer useful for people to deal with the conditions they live in or something like that. And perhaps we could go back here to how we classify uh, behaviors as mental diseases or mental conditions or not, because I guess that uh, with this perspective, perspective in mind, uh, then uh, we wouldn't really classify something as depression, at least as abnormal, let's say. Yeah, so this is a really interesting set of issues, I think. Um, so I think that there's there's two main things I might say about this. The first is that, um, yeah, there are, so there are aspects of ourselves, you know, some people have argued there are aspects of the way we are that um, we have evolved because they are advantageous. Um, but which might be sort of out of date or just um, not really advantageous anymore. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, sort of basically you might think, well, we've kind of, we've evolved so that we can, um, you know, that the whole, the whole point of the way we've evolved is to en enable us to survive long enough to pass on our, 
our genes to, to be able to procreate. Um, but, you know, as it happens, especially in today's world where people are sort of living longer and longer, we want to live and be healthy long beyond we've long beyond the age at which we can procreate. Uh, you know, so sort of um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of resources going into um, old age medicines of helping people live longer and stay fitter. So that's um, that that's well, that's just an example, really, of how this isn't a this isn't a problem sort of peculiar to psychiatry. Um, the fact that uh, we have evolved to be certain sorts of beings, and there may be good reasons for that, um, but uh, the, the cultures that we find ourselves in now may, may have different requirements and our priorities might differ. So, um, so there is going to be that, that sort of aspect of medicine. It's always sort of trying to, I guess, sort of hurry up evolution or sort of make amends for the fact that um, we're, evolution is kind of out of date in a way or, or we might think of it in that way. So that's one point that um, you know this, this is more of a general problem. Another point kind of relates back to what the purpose of psychiatry is and, um, and the purpose of medicine more generally. So, so let's say you know let, let's, let's grant that sort of depression has uh, there are good reasons, good adaptive reasons for, for why we have depression. And just sort of ignore the fact that uh, or the, the possibility that, that um, those adaptive reasons might not apply anymore. Um, so say it's sort of good that, that we have depressed people in, in our society. You know, let's just let's just imagine that's the case. And then there's a question sort of well what should we do about that? Um, I mean it could be that it's the case that it's good for society to have a few depressed people around, um, but that doesn't entail that it's a good thing, all, all things considered. Um, I mean, when we, when we treat people for, uh, in medicine or, or, or in psychiatry more specifically, usually the, um, the purpose is to improve things for that patient. So it's thought to be bad to be depressed because it's unpleasant for the person who is depressed. You know, when, when uh, patients are treated for depression, we're not sort of thinking more generally about the consequences for society as a whole. You know, we're not sort of thinking about, you know, sort of what if, uh, you know, what, what if, we, if we sort of uh, alleviate this person's symptoms, how might that impact on society more widely? I mean, we, we sometimes take those sorts of things into consideration, but I think usually the emphasis is on the um, the distress of the patient. So that that um, just highlights, I guess, a question of priority. You know, what is it that we want to achieve from um, treating um, medical conditions generally? Is it to improve the lot of the person who has that condition, the patient, or is it to improve things more generally? And I think sort of usually we prioritise the... Um, the, the welfare of the, the person, the patient. I mean, that's not always the case. So um, an obvious example of where that's not the case is, is vaccination, where, um, you know, it, it's often the case that if you get vaccinated for a against a disease where sort of most people in your society are already vaccinated, you're probably not going to gain much personally by that. But it's thought to be important to get vaccinated in order to um, achieve a herd immunity. So so the priority there is the uh, is, is keeping society in general um, free from this disease. Um, it's not that sort of by going and getting vaccinated for um, for measles, say, you're likely to be sort of gaining something personally. So that's an example of where we might prioritise, um, you know, primarily society over the, the welfare of the patient. I mean, that's kind of quite an easy example because um, as somebody who goes and gets a vaccination, you're not really 
suffering a great deal um, as a result of that. So um, perhaps it's something we don't view as too sinister. Um, but there are controversial um, examples from psychiatry where we might um, where we might worry about this. So this is not so much to do with the sort of evolutionary point, but to do with the point of sort of whose welfare are we prioritising? Is it the patient themselves or is it the welfare of society in general? So if somebody is, um, uh, th there's some cases where patients might get treated involuntarily, sort of against their, um, against their will, if they're thought to be a danger to others, say, so if you get somebody who is psychotic, for example, um, and uh, resistant, to, resistant to being treated, um, they might be sort of held down and, and, and sedated because it's thought to be important for everybody else's safety. So the worry is that they might harm somebody else or, or harm themselves. Um, and these cases tend to be, well, much more controversial than the vaccination case. So, you know, in the vaccination case, you don't really, uh, you don't have to suffer very much from getting vaccinated. You might get a few side effects and, you, you know, there's the, the mild discomfort of having a needle stuck into your skin. Um, but uh, treatment of psychotic patients without their consent is much more controversial, I think. There is this sort of question about sort of um, what is it to... I mean, what are the relevant factors in deciding when this is okay? Um, it might be very distressing for them to be treated, so it's something that you tend to take more seriously. But, you know, this, this issue is, is, is around generally in medicine. You know, there's a sort of, even if we sort of don't, aren't always aware of it, there is always a sort of background question, sort of what are we trying to achieve through, uh, through a given treatment? Mm-hmm. Yes, and when we pathologize something, I mean, it's really very difficult to separate sometimes at least uh, some of it from the ethics and morality behind it, because uh, I've just remembered what people tried to do or even did effectively uh, a few decades ago with homosexuals where they tried to convert them forcefully to heterosexuality in this case. And I mean, uh, nowadays we know that that's not really a mental disease or a mental pathology. It's just really a normal variation in terms of sexual orientation. And so we also have to take that into account, right? That sometimes what people at a certain point in history or in a certain society deem to be a mental pathology that is to be treated or eradicated uh, I, I mean, per perhaps there's more uh, morality into it than people want to admit, right? Yeah, no, I certainly think so. Um, I mean, a, a contemporary, uh, something similar to that, or sort of a difficult problem that, that's around at the moment is um, the issue of gender, reassi gender reassignment surgery, especially for, um, for children, for minors. Um, so, you know, there's some people that think that um, if you are um, a young person, say sort of below below the age of 16, say, um, and you, you sincerely believe that your, your body doesn't match with your, um, your, your, your self-conception, your, your beliefs about, about what, what gender you are, that, um, that someone in that situation should be allowed to have uh, gender reassignment surgery. Um, and there's other people that are sort of wary of this. Um, and we're sort of torn here on, on that there's sort of on the one hand there is this issue of autonomy you sort of um, 
who knows better than the person you you would hope that the, the person sort of telling you that they are that, that their body is all wrong um relative to their gender um should be listened to um just because there's a precedent set by sort of all sorts of other cases where people where patients are patients views about um about what they need is is listened to so well that, that that's a good thing to do in these cases but on the other hand you know there's 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 some data to show that people who have this surgery regret it later on um it's it's uh it's permanent um and there is uh we perhaps want to leave room for the possibility that sometimes people might be mistaken about about this um and this is a very difficult set of issues which sort of raises these questions about sort of um what is what are the relevant factors in allowing somebody to make or sort of recognizing a person as capable of making competent decisions about themselves now how much should we um should we rely on the autonomy of an individual or what we perceive as their autonomy and and how kind of paternalistic should we be you know so you might think in some cases there are um there there are people who are just wrong about what sort of illnesses they have so um you know somebody might think they have cancer you know to let's take a very simple example somebody might think they have cancer and a scan shows that they don't so um that, that we want to make room for the for the possibility that people just might be wrong about their about their conditions and factor that in but uh, when you when you're talking about um states of being that that aren't going to show up on a scan um it becomes a lot more difficult yeah and psychiatry is just replete with those sorts of um those sorts of conditions um and just states you know that's not just it's not just about pathology but the sorts of the sorts of um states of being that aren't going to show up on a scan and then there's a question about sort of how much um how much can we ra- rely on on a patient's self reports mhm Yes, you were just saying there that there's also the question of how much we should uh, patronize people because we might think that the things they want to do they might regret them later and in some cases it's irreversible. So perhaps I would like to put on the table now the example of someone who wants to commit suicide. So let's say that the person has already gone through a lot a long years of depression or something like that and she has already thought a lot about it and she decides that the best thing for her is just to to kill herself. So and she doesn't have access to uh, euthanasia in the health system and she so she decides to kill herself in some way or another. So in that case that the person arrives at that decision even though what she wants to do is absolutely irreversible to what extent should we respect that person's decision because when we talk when we talk about this and suicide is a very contentious issue because it involves directly death of course people usually say that oh but we have to save that person anyway uh, because perhaps most of the time if that person has lived a little longer than she would have overcome uh, her condition and her bad feelings and bad emotions and things like that and then later on she would have regretted 
regretted if she decided to kill herself or something like that. So what would you say about that? I mean, these cases are really interesting and there are kind of, of course, real life cases like this that arise, especially in, um, uh, so Belgium, it has this law where I, euthanasia can be, and euthanasia is available not just for people suffering from terminal cancer and other somatic illnesses, but also in cases of mental distress. Um, and it tends to be, it tends to be a lot more controversial in, um, to allow, to allow somebody to die or to help them kill themselves um, in a case where they are suffering from terminal cancer, say, is, is less controversial than making euthanasia available to somebody with uh, incurable depression, who's just kind of given up. Um, and it, it's interesting to think why that is. Uh, there's a sense in which we take the threat from somatic illness more seriously than the threat from um, mental illness. And one thing I think is to be um, to be aware of the possibility that that, uh, that that difference in attitudes might stem partly from um, a failure to take mental illness in general very seriously. So this sort of old-fashioned view that's sort of often rightly criticised, where the sort of depressed person is told to pull themselves together, or um, you know their distress isn't taken seriously, depression is not a real illness. They, these sorts of attitudes. Um, so I think we have to be careful that uh, our thoughts about um, when it's okay, when it's sort of ethical, ethically permissible to to help a person commit suicide, are influenced by sort of beliefs about how serious their their state is. Um, and so that's one that's one thing. And I think another thing is that something that's, something that's kind of under-recognized is that euthanasia, even in the case of um, terminal somatic illnesses, is actually sort of underpinned by, by mental distress. So if, you, know, you might say, well, if somebody has a, a terminal illness, terminal cancer, say, and um, they have, as is sometimes sadly the case, they, they've received all the treatment they, they can get, um, it's not. It's not doing any good. They're they're sort of too weak and beaten down by the idea of um, receiving any more treatment, and so they they ask to be allowed to die. Um, we tend to be sympathetic towards those cases, I think. But um, the significant thing is the is the distress they're they're going through. Um, so it's not. Um, it's not the fact that they are terminally ill that leads us to think that, um, that euthanasia is appropriate. I mean, in one in one sense, that doesn't even make sense. You might think, well, why does the fact that this person is likely to die very prematurely or very soon um, itself constitute a reason for um, for helping them to die? Well, you know, how does how does that follow? Well, I think you know when when you tend to look at the cases in which it happens, it's people who have sort of given up they don't they don't want to fight anymore they don't want to fight their, their illness anymore um and those are the cases when we tend to be sort of sympathetic to or, or sort of think that euthanasia might be appropriate but in that sort of case it's the it's the mental distress that is that is doing the work it's the sense of sort of having given up um and in that sense it, it's not unlike the sorts of cases that you that you mentioned when you introduced this topic that the idea of sort of somebody who is who's very depressed 
I mean, with something like depression, there is perhaps this this thought that you know you you can get better, which is I think just a sort of inability to take seriously the idea that um, some mental distress is very difficult to or impossible to to cure. Um, but I think that's also that that's what's going on in the cases of um, in the cases of uh, in, incurable somatic illness as well. It's not really the fact that somebody's going to die that's doing the work that's making sort of euthanasia seem like a um, a viable option. It's it's how they feel about it. It's the fact that it's it's distressed them. It's it's beaten them down. It's weakened them. So I think actually these two cases are, are pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's all very interesting. And I guess that perhaps when people think about uh, mental care or medical care, they think about uh, people saving other people, preventing their deaths, preventing their suffering and things like that. Uh, and I mean, it's very difficult for people to imagine helping someone by terminating their lives. But Let's say that, for example, someone who suffered from depression uh, their entire life uh, is at their deathbed and she's, for example, 80 years old and she says, oh, I lived 80 years and I haven't experienced a single moment or day of joy or happiness. So my life wasn't really worth living. I, I mean... In that case, shouldn't we think that perhaps it would have been uh, better to help that person end their life much sooner? Because, I mean, as she is reporting, she really went through 80 long years of suffering, at least mental suffering, right? Yeah, well, so I, think, I think we should take that sort of thought seriously. Um, there's there's maybe sort of two precautionary comments I'd make. The first is that you know I've, I've been talking about um, incurable depression, with, you know, with this assumption that it is we're talking about a case of you know something that is actually incurable. But uh, we should also be aware of the fact that you know just by having depression it makes people sort of give up and might think sort of life is pointless, um, and so. There is a concern that the desire to die might be a symptom of the depression rather than a sort of sincere, um, autonomous uh, wish. And then, you know, there are questions about, so, well, how do we tell the difference? And, um, and can we draw a clean line between those? But that's something to be aware of, I think. Um, and there's also the point that, you know, if we, if there is some uh, objective fact about whether or not somebody's life is worth living or not, you know, you sort of talk about somebody who's got to 80 and hasn't experienced a single moment of pleasure, then we might think, well, if, we, if we're tempted to conclude from that that the right thing to do then is to, is to help this person die, then, then what, does her, what do her wishes about it matter? You know, if her life is genuinely not worth living, then um, why not just um, help her to die or, or euthanize her whether she likes it or not? And that, I mean, that, that's a pretty sinister thought, I think. Um, which I think reveals how important the patient's perspective is. You know, it's not just a matter of um, objectively, or if that's even possible, you know, sort of some something approaching an objective judgment about sort of whether somebody's life is worth living or not. Although, you know, that is important. We we, we want to be sure that we um, it, it's you know it's a last resort that we can't help this uh, the person in question recover and enjoy life. 
Um, but at the same time, we want to take the patient's wishes seriously. So it might be that, you know, we, we, we encounter somebody who just had a terrible life, seems never to experience happiness, but is quite determined to carry on, you know, who doesn't want to die. And you, you sometimes do hear about these people. I mean, it would seem sort of terrible uh, in that sort of case to, to euthanize them against their will, I think. So you have this sort of tricky juggling act. On the one hand, you want there to be some sort of objective fact of the matter, um, or at least a fact that doesn't merely depend on patient self-reports, which can be, you, know, you want to leave room for the possibility that they're mistaken, about um, whether that person's life is really worth living. But on the other hand, the patient's wishes seem essential here. We don't want to be euthanizing people without their consent. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's move on to another topic, because I also wanted to discuss with you because for the last several years, since particularly the advent of gene editing technologies like CRISPR-Cas9 and others, we've been talking a lot also in philosophy and ethics about issues regarding human enhancement. So in the field of psychiatry and in terms of mental conditions and mental experiences uh, and psycholo uh, psychology in general even, uh, how should we think about dealing with uh, enhancing certain psychological traits of people? Yeah, so um, some of the some of the most well-known enhancement technology, um, smart drugs, are drugs excuse me, that, um, that originate in psychiatry. So people, um, people sometimes use um, Ritalin as a concentration enhancement, say, which is a, a medication that's given to, to people with ADHD. Um, and this is to be expected, I think. Um, I think that uh, when you're talking about um, psychiatric disorders, um, it makes sense to view these things as existing on a spectrum. So um, if you are, I mean, we all feel down from time to time, right? We sort of have, even people who, um, who, who have no sort of reason to go and see a doctor about their, their condition might feel depressed, um, melancholy on the odd day. And, uh, and, and that's, just part of, that's just part of normal functioning. You know, we have days when we, are, when we feel unhappy or, or sort of, things happen to us to make us feel unhappy. So that's sort of one end of the spectrum where you sort of have is that psychological distress is just part of normal life. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have sort of too much of it. So sort of feeling depressed every day and regardless of what happens to you um, strikes us as, as pathological. And in between, you have this sort of spectrum where it's not clear where you should draw the line between pathology and um, non-pathology. Um, and the same, you know, I mentioned ADHD, you have uh, these cases that we might be sort of inclined to view as pathological, where, where somebody sort of just can't concentrate for more than a few seconds, and that sort of severely impacts their life. Um, but on the other hand, we all have moments when we find it difficult to concentrate, and sort of lots of us wish we could concentrate better. Um, and then there is this question again about sort of where we should draw the line between pathology um, and non-pathology. So enhancement, as it's commonly understood, um, is uh, involves sort of taking the resources that you might usually use to treat uh, pathological conditions, so to treat d 
depression or, or, or ADHD um, or some other um, mental pathology. Now I'm sort of confining my discussion here to, to, to psychiatry. Um, and, and using those resources, using those drugs or techniques, tools, etc., to just to improve normal functioning in somebody who is not um, who is who is mentally healthy, if if any of us are. Um, so so that's what it is. Um, but there but there is an issue about you know for, for sort of partly because of reasons I've already mentioned. There's sort of this issue about sort of well how do we how do we define pathology in psychiatry? Given there's no you know given there's there's nothing kind of equivalent to um, an X-ray showing a broken leg, um, or a, a blood test that reveals the presence of some um, bacteria or virus. You know, you get in, in somatic medicine, you can think, yes, this person is uncontroversially and unambiguously ill. You just don't get that in, in psychiatry. So there is this question about sort of where you draw the line between um, health, health and illness. Um, and some sort of advocates of, of enhancement um, are in favour of, of just removing that line between health and illness, or at least um, at least arguing that it's not morally significant. So if you take something like Ritalin, sort of used sometimes as a smart drug, um, it currently sort of officially it's available only to people who are suffering from um, a psychiatric condition like, like ADHD. Um, but, you know, given that it can improve functioning in people who are not ill, in inverted commas, um, why not just make it freely available to everyone? Everyone, provided that it's sort of self, uh, provided that it's safe and is distributed fairly, and so on. Um, so yeah, I think um, you know there is this sort of wealth of opportunity um, in uh, the tools that are used to treat psychiatric conditions. That stems partly from the fact that um, that uh, psychiatric conditions um, exist on a spectrum, where something that improves the lot of somebody who is Thought to be in a pathological state sometimes also improves life for people who are who are healthy mm -hmm. okay so i guess that there's two issues here on the one hand uh, the fact that uh, we classify some things as pathologies and others not and perhaps uh, enhancement in certain cases is not really enhancement but simply therapy right and on the other end, it is also uh, who gets access to those sorts of enhancement. Because if all people get access to them, perhaps we don't really have a problem there, right? Uh, it depends what it is, I think. So um, if everybody had access to... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. But, you know, let, let's say we all, we all want to improve our concentration. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case, but just sort of imagine um, we all have we all want to improve our concentration, and there's some drug that can enable us to do that safely. Then it would be a good thing, you know. We might think if, if everybody had access to that, um, you know, there's no there's no if it's safe, there's no bad reason to do it. We can all kind of just get on what, with what we want to be doing without sort of procrastinating or dawdling and so on. We can be a lot more efficient. Um, but I think not not all enhancements are like that. Um, I mean, if you imagine uh, the possibility of a drug that um, improves our comp improves our competitiveness, like something that makes us sort of more driven and um, compete more aggressively. Um, I mean, if you took that drug and nobody else did, then that might be an advantage to you. 
you know, you sort of might get that job you're after or you sort of perform better than your peers against whom you're assessed. Um, but if everybody took that, it's not necessarily going to be a good thing. I mean, if we're all just kind of trying to claw our way over each other, then sort of nobody, nobody is actually better off. Um, and that sort of drug would be what's sometimes called a, a positional good. So I think that this, this term originates from, um, from an economist, Fred Hirsch, where um, he describes sort of some goods as being advantageous to some people, provided that other people don't have them. Um, so so an ex a sort of clear example might be being taller. That uh, If you want to be taller so that you can sort of see better in crowds, then um, uh, taking some drug or having some procedure so that you can be taller might benefit you. But if everybody else has it, then it's just nobody sees better and yet we've all sort of invested resources in this in this procedure that actually doesn't get us anywhere. So I think we have to be careful at what we're aiming at. Um, we should avoid, uh, or we should be careful about um, plugging resources into helping people achieve goods that are positional. Um, but if it's to, if if the end is to achieve something that um, is not positional, so that some 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 good that some good like happiness, where um, if everybody has it, it's a good thing, you know, sort of nobody loses out, then then that that's the sort of thing that's a sort of clearer good candidate for enhancement, I think. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, so the last topic I would like to cover here today uh, is the application of psychiatry and neuroscience applied to psychiatry in criminal cases. Because, I mean, uh, there has been a lot of discussion about uh, what, in what cases should we use uh, medical or psychiatric information uh, in in cases where people are accused of committing certain crimes and then perhaps uh, not uh, not considering them responsible for those mm. crimes for a reason or another, so how should we deal with those questions? Well, you mentioned um, sort of moral responsibility, and mm -hmm. um, I think uh, so. Moral responsibility is something that sort of philosophers are still arguing about you know sort of and probably won't ever stop mm. arguing about um this is the the set of issues around sort of whether we have free will whether we can ever really be held morally responsible for anything we do I mean, some people think that we can't um but the law is a well a whole arena where th it's premised on the idea that we are morally responsible so there's no point even in sort of having a system of punishment if no if nobody's if nobody's moral responsible if nobody is morally responsible then it's uh, it's inappropriate to punish anybody right um, at least for retributive reasons um, so the law rely the law is just starts from the assumption that we're that we're morally responsible unless um, in a particular case there's some reason to believe that somebody was um, uh, somebody was not responsible for what they did so um if somebody if it can be shown that somebody was coerced uh or you know blackmailed or um or not of sound mind so sort of delirious or um in some cases a crime of passion sort of overwhelmed by emotion then sometimes the law will sort of um uh, be more lenient on on people like that um but i think uh sort of what, what what you're talking about this sort of recent um recent moves to prove um to prove people are 
not responsible for what they do. Um, uh, we get things like uh, sort of brain scans being produced in court to show that somebody's um, somebody's brain was abnormal, um, and I think that is a really worrying um, step. Um, it's it's worrying partly because uh, we don't know what underpins. Well, from the point of view of being a lawyer, right, we don't know what sort, what sort of underpins moral responsibility. Um, philosophers disagree disagree about it. Um, so, uh, so what you've got in these um, in these criminal cases is a sort of a tinkering with the assumption that um, that uh, we are we are all morally responsible, um, uh, but you might be able to produce evidence that, that somebody's not. Um, now, a brain scan it, it's um, it is thought by some some psychiatrists and some neuroscientists that. Um, we're making progress towards showing that there are actual brain differences between, say, psychopaths, or sort of violent people, and uh, and mentally healthy people. Um, so you could imagine a case of a a violent psychopath in court for some crime, some violent crime, um, and a brain scan being produced um, where the, the the lawyer says, "Look, his brain's different from most people's, so he's not morally responsible." Um, now there's a whole set of there's a whole set of problems here. The first is sort of well, what what can we take that to show? What can we what can we take sort of mere difference in brain states to show? I mean, you might think in one sense, well, um, well, yes, if assuming that our um, our behaviour arises in part from what goes on in our brains, then you would expect the brain states of somebody who's very violent to differ from in sort of certain respects from, from somebody who's not. But that doesn't yet show anything about moral responsibility. Um, to show that, you would, have to, you, you would have to show something further. Not only um, is this person's brain, um, not only does this person's brain look like the, the brain of a violent person, but that the violence was in some sense not this person's fault, that they are, they're sort of not morally responsible for it. Um, and that's the that's the step that's worrying, I think. Um, you know, you sometimes get this discussion in psychiatry about sort of whether certain people, so whether somebody with um, uh, whether a psychopath, say, is um, is is mad or bad. You know, so whether they are whether they are morally responsible for what they do or whether they are just ill. Um, I mean, it might not be that there's a diff there's a clean line here. It could be that uh, that, that both are possible. You know, there, there needs to be a discussion about sort of um, moral responsibility in the in the case of people with mental illnesses. Um, but you know, this can't be done. I don't think this can be done uh, keeping in place the assumption that people who are mentally healthy healthy are morally responsible. I mean, what you've got when you sort of have two you compare the brain of a healthy person with the brain of a violent person that just doesn't show you anything about moral responsibility that that discussion is not it's just not something that takes place at the level of at the level of brain scans so i think this is a concerning concerning step in law mm -hmm. yes and when we discuss these matters it almost always go to the discussion about if free will exists or not but i mean uh, if free, free will were to not exist, then perhaps, uh, I, I mean, sh uh, 
uh, we shouldn't put anyone in jail because uh, he or she has done something bad. I mean, perhaps on the other end, it's also a question of people nowadays being more aware that perhaps we shouldn't treat people in certain ways and perhaps most people that commit at least violent crimes, uh, they come from uh, difficult conditions in life and perhaps they should be uh, maybe rehabilitated instead of simply put into a jail or something like that. So th there's also these parallel questions here, right? And perhaps when people sometimes try to make the case that no one is morally responsible for their actions because it's sometimes at least it's because they they don't like the way people are treated when they are uh, when they are accused of certain crimes correct yeah so i think th these questions these questions are relevant if what we're doing when we punish people is is uh, retributive so um you know we're punishing people the reason for punishing people is primarily because they've done wrong and they deserve to be punished um, in some sense I mean if we're not interested in retribution if we're interested in deterrence um, then or just keeping keeping dangerous people isolated so they can't do any any harm you know if this is what we're interested in then these questions kind of don't matter um, if it looks like you're if it looks like society is going to be a better place by putting um, some person in prison then um then if that's all you're interested in in sort of these oh, sort of consequentialist um approaches to punishment then fine um but what i mean what we're talking about here is retribution and the um cases where people are thought to deserve punishment um and i think this is sort of really a a really difficult set of issues so what it is uh, what is involved in somebody deserving punishment um because as you say, you know, sort of the more we learn about people and why they behave in the way that they do, the more we sort of end up with this, well, I, I suppose the closer we get to a causal explanation of why they're behaving the way we do, the less appropriate retribution is. And you see this, I think, in the, just in the sort of assumptions that lie behind this sort of what we were just talking about, introducing brain scans in court to show that, uh, that criminals are not responsible for what they do. Um, it sometimes happened that as soon as you sort of introduce the possibility of um, pathology, or the, the idea that somebody's ill, um, we are then sort of willing to consider the the possibility that it's not their fault. You know, there's this sort of whole debate about the moral responsibility of the psychopath, um, where, you know, sort of it seems uh, a mainstream view in, among philosophers who write about this sort of thing, that, um, that psychopaths aren't responsible, aren't morally responsible for what they do. It might still be a good idea to lock them up, you know, if they're violent, you might just think um, that's necessary for, for public safety. But um, but there's a sense in which they, they don't deserve that, where sort of deserve relates to, um, to moral responsibility. Um, and I think it's, you know, this, this issue is just going to become, it's, it's just going to go on and on, you know, because the more we find out about why people behave the way they do, the, um, the, um, the, the greater the possibility is for these kind of mitigating explanations that undermine moral responsibility. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so Dr. Roach, just before we go, I would like to ask you to please give us a short teaser on your upcoming book on swearing that I know that you're writing it now. So could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so um, I'm interested in um, what swearing is. So um, it's a type of offensive language, but it's unlike other forms of offensive language. So it's not like um, it's not like sort of slurs, um, sort of racist, homophobic language um, people are familiar with. Um, it's not it's not like blasphemy. Um, it's not like merely insulting people. So all of these all of these forms of uh, speaking are ways of being offensive, but swearing seems to be in a category of its own. So I'm interested in characterizing what swearing is. Um, and also considering what sort of norms surround it. So we are all, I think, familiar with the idea that we shouldn't swear, at least in, in certain circumstances. Um, but it, it, it looks like that sense of shouldn't doesn't relate to morality most of the time. It, it's, um, it's, it's not the case that you shouldn't swear because it's, because it's harmful or because you are infringing somebody's rights. In most cases, it's it's a different sort of shouldn't. So I'm interested in unpacking that, um, and I, I I understand swearing as a type of etiquette breach. So so sort of well, in sort of to summarise it very briefly, we shouldn't swear because it's impolite. Um, but then there's all this all these sort of interesting issues about uh, how we mitigate swearing. So um, often it's the case that if uh, if a TV show wants to broadcast somebody swearing, but they don't want to get in trouble for it, they will um, they will censor it. So you will get um, you'll get a swear word bleeped out, or um, or asterisks will be used if it's in print. But um, often it's, it's enough information is left there for it to be very clear what um, what swear word was said. So I'm interested in in how this how this all works. You know how it is that um, that we manage to swear without without causing offence, and what that says about what swearing is, um, and how we do it. Mm-hmm. And okay. finally, I'm, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And finally, I'm sort of interested, like as a, a sort of positive, a positive way of finishing the book. Um, my last chapter is on the value of causing offence. So I think there's some people who are unable to cause offence through swearing, uh, and that's. And that's sort of bad for them. They they lose out in some way. Um, so certain disabled people that speaks with the age of um, of, of technology, maybe it's a sort of machine to enable them to speak. Um, and just maybe sort of people with um, uh, sort of unconventional voices. So somebody with a very high voice, for example, might have trouble um, causing offence through swearing. And the fact that we sort of think that it's bad for them, I think, reveals something sort of not often recognized about the capacity to cause offense that there's something there is there is something good about it it's valuable in some way mm-hmm. okay very interesting so and what are some of the online the best online places if people want to know a little bit more about your work uh, well i've got a website you can um you can look at that if you google my name uh that that will come up um I'm on Twitter as well, although most of my Twitter feed is kind of nonsense rather than about my philosophy. But you can say hi. <laughs> okay, okay. So, Dr. Roach, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. It was a very interesting conversation. And maybe, perhaps, when your new book is out, we could have another one. I don't know. That would be lovely. Thanks so much for having me. 
Hi guys, thank you a lot for watching this interview until the end. I'm recording a new ending just to let you know a couple of new things, but I mean I've started this channel in February 2018 and I've been putting out a lot of interviews with academics and intellectuals. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. And if you don't like Patreon or prefer other platforms, you can also have you can also go to PayPal and subscribe from $1 to $20. I have all of those options in the description box of the video and you can also make a one-time donation on PayPal and also you can go to subscribe star uh, and pledge an, any amount there so uh, you have all of those options to support the channel and so before I go I would like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera and I'm very proud of this my first producer Isar Webb thank you for all